Welcome to the Schoolhouse Podcast, where it is jumping, all right? So the objective of the Schoolhouse Podcast is to provide strategic support for educators to enhance their careers, all right? Look, I'm excited about today's interview. Look, I'm not going to get too much into detail. I want my guest to go ahead and introduce himself. Well, Mr. Schoolhouse, thanks for having me. I uh, love the work you're doing with young people. I've, you know, studied your 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 book of work and you're doing amazing things, uh, man. So I appreciate you and just honored to be here. Uh, I'm Kwame Johnson, uh, president and CEO of Big Brothers Big Sisters Metro Atlanta. But more importantly, I'm a defender of potential. And I work with young people. Uh, I've been working with young people my whole adult life, uh, helping them reach their full potential. And that's what it's all about. Wow, man, the CEO, that's, that's pretty major, man. That's pretty major. So I, I love to get us started with why why did you decide to work with young people? What what got what, what was that drive for you? Yeah, you know, my why, you know, starts with my parents who were both into service. My mom was an educator. So is my father. Uh, my mom served on the school board in my local community growing up. Um, so they both grounded me in, in service. My father did a lot of work in the community. He had a track club for, for young kids. He was a track runner, went to college on a, a track scholarship. Um, so they really grounded me in, in the work, you know, but like a lot of the young people we work with throughout the city, you know, I made a lot of bad decisions growing up, right? And that allowed me to, uh, you know, get into this work, right? So I met young people uh, when I went to jail at the age of 17 for making the bad decisions that really helped me find my passion. One young man named Anthony, who I talk about all the time, really, you know, is someone I think about. And Anthony, I met him in, in solitary confinement, actually. And uh, we would talk through the ventilation system, get to know each other. And, you know, he used to get into trouble all the time. He would get in fights and end up in solitary confinement. And one time I said to him, I said, Anthony, man, why do you keep coming back to solitary confinement? This is a terrible situation. And he said, Kwame, your father comes to see you every week. And I said, he does. And he said, my father is in the next unit and I met him here for the first time. Mm. So Anthony's story, his his challenges, but his belief in me, he believed in me and he didn't believe in himself. And there's, as you know, millions of Anthony's of the world that don't get the opportunities that we have been afforded. So I've been working on the behalf of the Anthony's of the world, um, but they are the reason why I do this work because um, most people don't know about them. They hear all these bad things, but they're no different than me and you. I had mentors that poured into my life. So I've decided to use the second chance at life to, to pour into other young people. Now, this is this is pretty interesting. You know, you mentioned that you come from a family of educators. Yep. But you still decided to you you made some poor decisions. What like what was your thinking process? Because here you are, you have parents who are like heavily involved in education and pretty sure instilling all these great values, but yet you still made some of those decisions. What what kind of what was like your thinking process along along the way with that? Yeah, it's a few things. So I wrote a book last year and the title is called The Hope Inside. And it's really about how mentors bring hope out in, out, out of us. And that was a part of my story. Um, but in the book, I wrote a piece where I talked about how my parents decided to stay in my community that I grew up in. They tried to change the community, but instead the, the community changed us, right? So the community I grew up in changed over time from a good community to a lot of bad things happening. And as a young person, as a teenager, you know, once you walk out the house, 
it's up to you to decide what you're going to do. You can have the best parents in the world, which I did. I still do. I'm blessed to have both my parents. You can have the best parents give you the best advice. But when you got to walk to school and go into that school building or deal with things at the park or at the store, you got to make those decisions. And for a long time, I was able to make the right decisions. But eventually, my my friends from my community started dropping out of school. So I had two friend groups, my school friends and then my friends from my community. And over time, as I became a teenager, I started to hang more with my friends who were dropping out of school. And along with that came bad decisions that, you know, put my life at risk um, along the way. So my parents did a great job. They did an amazing job in Syracuse where I'm from doing work in the community. I made I made some bad decisions. No, I, I think that is that's an interesting story because here you have, you know, a lot of times when you have students that come from low income communities or, you know, when we talk about specifically speaking to the black community, a lot of young males grow up without their father in their life, which can start to get work. Like they started thinking about making bad choices, bad decisions. But like your story was the opposite. Like you had all those, you know, tools, resources from parent, your parents, but yet, you know, it was still like tempting to like make those bad decisions, which is just, it's, it's pretty interesting. Yeah. I looked up to the drug dealers, no difference than a kid with no uh, father in the household. I looked up to them the same way. Um, you know, that life I wanted, um, even though I had the, the right influences. So that's why it's even more important to have mentors in young people's lives. So you have other people outside of your parents sometimes, whether they're involved or not, people who are closer to you in age, probably, who maybe been through some of the same things, who are dealing with some of the same things you went through, help give you that guidance. Because my parents really couldn't help me navigate some of the decisions I had to make when I had to leave out the house. Mm, that's interesting. So yeah. kind of talk about some of the work, like what motivated you to get into the Big Brothers uh, organization and take on the leadership role as a CEO? I know those were like two questions, but. Yeah, so, you know, a big part of it, all of it is God, right? Because, you know, I didn't plan this. Um, and along the way, different people kind of came in my life to help me just keep going in the right um, direction. But it, it really started when I got out of jail, graduated high school on time. There's a whole story of me taking my SATs behind bars, first kid to ever do that. Mm. But I had my coach, my track coach, who was still recruiting for me, I, you know, even though I lost all my scholarships in Hampton, gave me a shot. So I got to Hampton University and I'm sitting there like, man, I feel like a fish out of water. I'm just coming home from jail. And I'm around a lot of affluent black folks who are there, who I had really no connection with at that point in my, my life. But I met a guy named Bob Woodson, who was a CEO of a nonprofit, former civil rights leader. And he kind of took me under his wing, gave me a job in D.C., loved my story. And he was doing work with gangs at the time. And he was actually hiring former gang members and putting them in school buildings to work with kids that wow. were in wow. gangs. It was unheard of. This is, this is the early 2000s. Wow. Uh, and, uh, you know, God put me in his his path and uh, we teamed up and I, I decided to leave Hampton when I was 20. My parents didn't like the idea because it took so much for me to get there. Mm. But I went, went up to D.C. and worked for Bob for seven years and just learned about how to be a CEO, how to be the, how to get comfortable with my story and uh, how to be confident, even with the story, to be able to lead organizations and do the work that I'm doing now. So he put that in me. And then I just kind of went from there. I was in D.C. 12 years and I came to Atlanta eight years ago and I joined Big Brothers and Big Sisters five years ago. But I've been in youth development my whole adult life. Mm, mm. 
So when we talk about mentorship, right, I think you made a, a very valuable point. You mentioned that there has to be basically outside influences outside of your parents, even if your parents are a good influence, but people who are closer to that age. How can people in the education system, educators, teachers, you know, whomever, how can they build a like a mentorship type of relationship with their students to kind of meet them where they are? Yeah. So, you know, that that's an interesting topic because we're actually, you know, thinking about how we can better support schools currently right now. And I'm like hats off to teachers, hats off to coaches, hats off to anybody that works in the school building to support young people. We need young people in school buildings. If you stay in school and graduate high school, you got a shot. And I know that sounds like a simple solution. Mm. But if you look at if you look at the data, the fastest way out of poverty is a high school diploma. That is not the end at all. Right. College, career, military. There are a lot of options after that. But if you study poverty the way I do, the fastest way out is a high school diploma. But what's happening with our teachers is we I think we're asking too much of teachers, to be honest with you. Mm. Right. We're asking too much of teachers. And, you know, we have developed a new program where we're actually putting mentors in school buildings, paid mentors embedded in school buildings to mentor kids throughout the school day. So, you know, even the most best teacher with all the great intentions don't have time to do curriculum, assessments, testing, and then mentor children in a very, you know, intentional way. They can try. And, it's you know, there are many of them that are able to do that. But is that scalable and is that sustainable? Wow. In public or in public education. So I think we got to think about it a little differently where we need to add another layer in school buildings that provides kids not only guidance counselors, but mentors and not only social workers, but mentors that is needed in this post COVID world and the challenges that young people are facing, but will be facing with mental health, isolation, social media on top of it. We now have created a program that provides mentorship to kids in schools and not just the two kids or five kids. I'm talking about the whole sixth grade in our three pilot schools. Also, the seventh grade students all have access to mentorship. Mm. And that's that's a great point. I kind of want to harp on that because I remember I remember a time where I was volunteering at a school in Clayton County. And I remember asking the principal to give to give me like a caseload of students who were, I don't like to say bad, but they caused some trouble, right? And I would go up there consistently. And all I did was build relationships with them. And they started to change over time and do better academically, personally. So I, I mean, when you talk about bringing mentors in the school to kind of take that load off the teachers and administrators just a just a bit because they do have a lot when they play. So I mean, I think that is man, that's phenomenal. That is great. So how can how can schools how can schools collaborate with uh with the with your with the organization to get mentors? Yeah. What does that process look like? Yeah, so a lot of it's word of mouth. And the great thing about Big Brothers and Big Sisters, we have offices all around the country, 200 offices. And we've historically been known as a one-to-one -one organization that matches a, a, an adult with a mentor. And they typically do that work in, in the community, after hours, on the weekends. But this new version of school support is something that not only is going on in Atlanta, we're starting to roll out to other cities. So, you know, principals can reach out directly to us. We can set up a partnership meeting. We're now in five schools with this model. The mayor wants us to get to all the middle schools in Atlanta. We just expanded to, to Lithonia Middle in DeKalb. And we're testing this out in middle schools right now. I think it can also apply in high schools. 
but we wanted to go where the need was. So during COVID, I got so many calls from uh, middle school principals who yeah. were experiencing unique challenges. I think every grade level has unique challenges, but we know middle school is that critical time where young people make those decisions, good or good or bad. So we are testing this in middle schools, but we're willing to partner with other schools as well to think about how we can help them because I think public education needs an ex extra layer of support. And I haven't come across any, any model in any city that's been scalable across multiple schools where kids are getting mentorship. And what we're working on is my dream is in Atlanta, every middle school student would have access to mentorship, sixth, seventh, and eighth grade. And just think about what that can do. For mm -hmm. school. We, already, we already see attendance going up, disciplinary issues going down in our schools, grades going up in our schools, kids feeling more confident about themselves in our schools with the data in this first year of doing the program. So when you talk about mentorship, right, how do you go about matching the students to the mentors? Are you going based off age? Are you going based off personality? Like, how does that, how does that work? Yeah, so in our school program, it's a little different because every sixth grader gets a mentor, right? So I, so I put two or three mentors in a school building and these are young folks from the community, lived experiences, wanna help kids. Many of them already worked in a school building maybe as a paraprofessional, but they don't wanna be a teacher. Right. But they still want to work with kids in a different kind of way. So in the school model, every kid gets a mentor, right? So it's not a necessarily, they have to agree to want to do it. But what we're able to do is provide the whole sixth grade class, if they want it, and seventh grade and eighth grade class with access to mentorship. Um, but the main thing is hiring the right folks that can work with young people. In our community-based program, our traditional program, where we match you with a big, a little, based on preference. So we match you based on you know, your preference. You might, you know, Mr. Schoolhouse want to work with a 12-year-old, you know, who's in the sports or who's in the education. Um, we match you that way. We also match you based on where you live. So I wouldn't match you with a kid that's 20 miles away, right? Because it's going to be hard for you to go get them on the weekends and that kind of thing. But then not only do we get your preferences, we get the young person's preferences. They may, they may want to work with a certain age group or a certain person. So very similar to like match.com and all these different sites, we use preference and location to match because we know that's what's fundamental to relationship building. Mm -hmm. And relationships take time to build. So what's unique about our program is, I don't just say here, here's a young person to work with. Uh, we, we match you based on preference, but then I give you a coach to work with you through the life of the match. So you're not on your own. Not everyone's been a parent before. Not everyone's been a mentor before. And we wanna make sure you're trained and supported. So you get a coach who gives you a plan, who troubleshoots if the issue comes up, who gives you ideas to hang out with your young person, uh, work on areas that they may be struggling in, confidence, schoolwork, whatever it is. So it's a full service program we have um, at Big Brothers and Big Sisters. Wow, man, that is um, that is amazing. That is amazing. That is that is some good stuff, man. And for all the educators out there, especially if you're in Atlanta, this this is a great opportunity to get connected to a mentorship program that will be effective and encourage your students to, to stay consistent with their academics, to, to develop personally, academically, emotionally. So, man, that's, that's some good information to know about. So when we talk about mentorship, what is a story that you have that, that you've personally invested into someone and you, wow, they completely changed? Like, can you kind of walk us through that? 
Yeah, so two stories. One would be, um, so going back to Anthony, I told you I met Anthony in solitary confinement. So I joined Big Brothers and Big Sisters, right? And this is how God works. Um, you know, and of course, I got to get matched with a young man. You know, where we got two, at the time, we had about 500 boys on a waiting list. And uh, that, that number is way down now. So I sign up to be a big the same way. I go through the process and uh, I get matched with a young man named what? Anthony. Mm. And uh, he was eight years old at the time. Uh, his father had passed away in a motorcycle accident when he was two. So his mom really just wanted a father, you know, not like a father figure, not a father, um, a mentor, you know, in his life. And we just sort of walked through life together. And it was great. He's still doing well in school and is uh, 10 years old now. And that, you know, that's an example of what it means to be a big. Now, Stefan is another name. Stefan was not mentored by me, but he came through the program, grew up in the cab, um, single parent household, um, just needed some direction, was making some bad decisions. Now is uh, killing it in the financial industry. He's graduated college, is a business owner, has a food truck, you know, and I take him with me informally now to give him exposure to the business world. I take him with me on the news or to the radio station. So I'm informally mentoring a lot of young men like him all across Atlanta, where my way of doing it now is to bring them along with me and doing different things that I do. So I just bring them along, take them with me to a meeting, take them to the, uh, to the radio station. You know, Stefan never been on radio before, right? Yeah. But just that exposure, um, I think, opens up eyes. You know, young people got to see it to believe it. So my mentorship now, with my schedule, is I try my best to give young people, particularly young boys, exposure so they can see things that I see. And hopefully one of those things will click with them. So when you talk about exposure, right, kind of going back to the program that you guys are, you know, working on implementing where it's already happening, do the mentors, do they do they take them on trips? Or like, how does that exposure component? Because I, I think that's important when you when you specifically are talking about kids that come from low income communities. I've heard this. I've heard this crazy statistic and I don't know how true it is because I haven't did like my actual research. But I've heard that there are kids that that stay within their community and they never travel like five mile a five mile radius outside of their community or went to a different state before. And I was like, wow, like that that exposure is so important. So how do you guys like do that with, with your organization? Yeah, there's kids in Atlanta that have never been to the aquarium or wow. to the world or to the world of coke. There's kids in Atlanta that have never carved a pumpkin. Before there, there's kids in Atlanta that never been to a formal dining setting, so don't know how to do use their silverware. So that exposure is huge, right? And we came up with a program probably about five years ago called Workplace Mentoring. Okay. And this is a this is a high school program. Uh, and what we do is we partner with a local company. So our first partner was Cox. As you know, Cox has an amazing campus in Dunwoody. And instead of the volunteer, the mentor coming to the school, we bring the kids to the corporation. So they come to Cox throughout the month. They get a mentor at Cox, but they also get to work on real life work related stuff. So they get to not only see the, the auditorium in the, in the in the cafeteria, which is amazing at Cox. A lot of these corporate campuses are amazing. Um, they get to go to the marketing department. They get to go to the finance department. And it, they also get to see people that look like them in those roles. So there are a lot of different ways we get kids into corporate America, but this is a lighter way, a softer way to sort of introduce young people to get them comfortable. Because I know young people who are coming out of college and they get placed at a corporate America and they're fish out of water. 
Yeah, they may be yeah. they may be the only one that looks like them. There's no support network, so they get there, but they may not thrive there and go to the next level there. So this program is built to give kids mentors in corporate community, but also exposure to the corporate community. And they also work on like real life issues that the company's working on. They might have a marketing issue or, you know, a sales issue. They work on that together with their mentor. And uh, that's called workplace mentoring. It started in Miami. Miami has a huge partnership with Carnival Cruise Line. Uh, Carnival Cruise Line is is, is, is based in, uh, in Miami and they now have hundreds of young people that have gone through the program that not only went through the mentoring program, but now work at Carnival Cruise Line because of that partnership. Wow. That's amazing. That's, yeah. that's, that's amazing. That's great stuff, man. With, with schools. So I, I would, I would like to see how you guys have implemented that, you know, with big brothers getting students exposure. Do you have any, tips or strategies on how schools can partner with these organizations so that they too can have access to this as well? Or like how do yeah. you about partnerships with things like this? Yeah, I think a school, if they want to do this kind of work, they really need to create a, a person that can sort of navigate and make these partnerships work, right? There are so many resources in Atlanta, so many corporations. I think what happens with schools sometimes is they don't they're not structured the right way to to take on these partnerships. So the young people mix mix uh, miss out. So they need to have some type of point person. And many of our schools that we work in, we make sure they're ready for this kind of partnership first. And all of them have a point person that we can work with who's focused on these sort of external partnerships. Right. Hmm. So I'm, I'm, and, and if a school doesn't have that, it just makes it hard, even with good intentions because these things take a lot of planning and scheduling and logistics. And if that gets overlooked, sometimes the young person doesn't have the best experience. So I encourage schools to incorporate this in their planning. Um, many of our schools have sort of not just us, but other providers in the building, like Chris 180, who does mental health or communities, communities and schools that connects families to resources. The school has to be set up for these type of external partners, because I really believe that schools should be the community. Like mm-hmm. school, schools, think about it, you got a building in the community that in most cases only open from what 7 p.m. till 4 or 5 p.m. Like let's think about what schools could look like today and what resources they could be for families um, full circle 360. You know, what could they really be like schools should be communities, um, I think, because our, our thing we should really focus on our society is keeping kids in school. And we can't do that with just curriculum and instruction. Mm. And, if, and if you think about it, Kid, most kids go to school and they can spend the whole entire day and never interact with a, an adult outside of instruction. Mm. Never be able to say like, hey, this happened last night. Right. You know, hey, I got to deal with this when I leave school. I got to deal with this at lunchtime. Never able to talk to somebody in an intentional way about things outside of math and science and, and reading. So we got to change the way schools operate and think in general, I think. No, I, I think. I think you're right. I think in my personal opinion, I think that school should be a place for the community. I know that recently, I always forget the name of that school, but they, um, it's this artist name. His name is Ghana, hip hop artist. And he had opened up a grocery store inside of the middle school out there in College Park. And I thought that was a phenomenal idea because I mean, when you talk about some kids don't don't eat, don't get to eat at home for real. You know what I mean? Like they come to school hungry. How you expect them to 
be successful academically, but they haven't ate anything, you know, first thing in the morning. Or what, what if they miss breakfast that, that morning? They didn't get to school on time because breakfast shuts down at a certain time. So being able to provide these resources like community safe haven can, you know, be very beneficial to the school system. Yeah, there's models around the country where, where school systems are doing this. So I hope it just continues to catch on. Like I remember doing some work in Milwaukee and this is the first time I ever saw a bank within a school building. Oh, wow. Not only did they have a bank, the kids ran the bank. So the kids worked at the bank. They had bank accounts. They had an ATM machine, but they actually had a bank in the school. I'd never seen that before. And they were really intentional about financial literacy, which is another piece we miss quite a bit. There are so many pieces young people need outside of reading and writing that we got to get serious about putting that in front of them earlier so that they're not making bad decisions as a young adult that that, that kind of just follow them further along. Wow. Wait, uh, a whole bank. Yep. South Division High School in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, on the south side. They had a bank in the school. Now is that now now is that is that consider is that a Title One school like yeah they, they yeah. oh wow and they ran yeah. the bank they got it they got a bank man yo that's I cool think, <laughs> I think we got a lot more flexibility than we think you know right. it's, on, it's on it's on us as leaders any the, the right leader can solve any problem you know mm-hmm. I don't care what the problem is the right leader can solve any problem we gotta get the right leaders in the right seats to work on some of these challenges and think innovatively think differently. We think we think like blockbuster too much, right? Mm-hmm. We got to think differently about how we approach education in America, and what young people need today, and also what they need tomorrow. Mm, as a leader, you know, as a as a CEO of the um, Big Brothers organization, how do you go about solving problems and you know thinking outside the box? I know you mentioned the program with the schools, which is definitely phenomenal. But like, what is the thought process? Do you look at the problem and say? How can, do you go based off data? Like what is your thinking process when it comes to things like that? Yeah, so it, it depends on what the problem is, right? And I have a lot of people I lean on and mentors and other CEOs and we support each other, right? No one is a super superhero in this world, right? And I don't think anybody should try to be, but you gotta be smart about things. But as it relates to things with students in the community, I solve those problems by listening to the community. You know, when you know, I listen to what the community tells me, you know, the community, the principal said I need a mentor for every kid in my school. And that was a problem for us because we didn't never had that level of scale because we were just using volunteers. We'd never hired mentors before. Mm. So I, I came up with that solution because that's what a principal asked me to do. Business challenges to come my way. You know, a lot of my problem solving comes from just experience of seeing different plays. But if I ever experience a problem that I've never seen before. I call somebody that's, you know, maybe a little older than me, that's been a CEO mm-hmm. and say, hey, what do you think? What do you think about this challenge? You know, this is my thinking. What do you think? You know, I get some ideas from other people. Right. And then I just store that mm-hmm. for other problems that come. Right. I just store that stuff there. But I'm be, I'm always open to listening to others, finding out all the, the, the getting the information. Right. There's always three sides to a story. And then sort of thinking through what's the best solution to that to that problem. Well, you say, you say three sides to one. What do you mean by that? Like, so if you come to me with a problem, you got your side, right? The other person has their side. And then the, the truth is somewhere in the middle. So there's three, three, there are always three sides to a story, I think, in life. So if you come to me and say, hey, I got this problem with Tony, I go talk to Tony. Tony going to say, I got this problem with Mr. Schoolhouse. 
the 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 true story is probably somewhere in the middle between your story and his story because you have a perception of the problem and he has a perception of the problem, right? Hmm. But the real meat is in the middle, and it's, I think as a society we got to get more comfortable with coming to that middle place hmm. Hmm. because we we come you're gonna come to me with your own biases and your own experience and your own view of the problem, and he's gonna have his own biases and all experience. Like we all going it's all about how you look at something, right? Mm. And, and that is the way I approach things in life is, is trying to find that middle place because that's typically where the answer is. That's good stuff, man. Let's let's talk a little bit about your book. You said you written a book. Can you can you kind of expound on that a little bit? Tell me a little bit more about it. Yeah. So my book is called The Hope Inside. And the subtitle is Harnessing the Power of Mentorship in Life and Career. So this is my first book. And my approach to it was to one, tell my story. But I didn't want it to be only my story, right? I also wanted to teach some leadership lessons. Okay. So it's two part. It's a it's a memoir uh, with my story, and then it's also leadership lessons that I picked up along the way because not a lot of people know about the nonprofit sector. Not a lot of people know about you. You know, you could do well and do good. You could be a CEO, and you could be a CEO of color in the nonprofit sector. Um, so I really went into a lot of that because when you're, I know when I was in college, I didn't hear about nonprofit sector. I didn't hear about this being a lane. And, and if you think about it, you know, people of color, a lot of times we're the ones getting served. So why not be the person, you know, leading that organization and serving folks uh, that look just like you? The story part is a big part of it as well, because I'm very big into people telling their stories mm. in, partic in particular leaders of color, because your story is your superpower. And it enables you to connect with people in a very special way. So too often we're, you know, not comfortable with things that have happened in our life. So when you meet somebody, they give you like sort of a, a certain version of their life. They, they start with college, typically, typically don't start with their childhood. And your informative years are so important to who you are today. But a lot of us are just not comfortable with it. So I want I always encourage leaders to tell their story. And they get comfortable with being vulnerable because it, it allows you to connect with people. And if you're talking about being a leader or getting anybody to do anything, you got to connect with people. And your story is an immediate, unique way to connect with people. So that's what that's what the book was all about. And uh, for me, I tell people to write a book for a few reasons. One is legacy. Right. It will always be here. Um, that, you know, something that you can you know, always leave behind for your family, friends, and everybody. Uh, two is the best business card you'll ever have. Hmm. It is it is the best business card you'll ever have. Uh, a book is a great thing to leave with somebody. Um, and then the third would be validation, uh, in particular for, for, you know, a black guy with a bald head. You know, I've been doing this work a long time, and putting my body of work into a book gives a level of validation um, that I think is important for leaders. You know, man, obviously, I was I was really inspired and encouraged because when I first went to the men's meetup and you mentioned your your position, I was like, wow, somebody of somebody that looks just like me that's in this position. That was inspiring because honestly, see, I, I on times where I get a little where I have free time, I will say I do a lot of research and I, I look at. I'm all, I look at the leadership and the faces of organizations and companies and it's, I don't see it too often where I see people that look like me that's leading the organization. So when I saw that, 
I was like, wow, that is very that that wasn't that was inspiring. That was um in a very encouraging moment, you know. So yeah, man. Yeah, I appreciate that. Yeah. I appreciate that. And I want to do more of that. I want to, you know, I didn't know I could be here when I was 20, just getting started, you know, but Bob Woodson, who was a CEO who looked like me, you know, said, you can do it. He showed me you can do it. He said, this is how you do it. And he took me around the country and and, and just, I just tagged along. And he showed me how to do it. And I said, you know what? That's not that hard. Yeah. Right. So I think half the battle is just believing you can do it. Yeah. And And if you can get over that part, you know, you can learn anything, you yeah. know? And uh, so that, that's my goal is to help other leaders just, believe that you could do it like and then hopefully just believing that you could do it will help you take that first step and it might not be being a ceo everybody does not have to be a ceo it's not the most easiest job all the time it's a lonely job it's very stressful all the things fall on you it it requires a lot of your time so it's not a fit for everybody but everyone has a passion that they need to figure out everybody has a superpower multiple superpowers and if you can figure those things out and marry them together you can be the best version of yourself. And it's for everyone to figure that out. I talk to so many leaders who don't know what their passion is mm. and they don't know, they don't know what they're good at, mm. you know, and it's already there. It's already inside of us. It just got to get quiet and think about, okay, what do I really want to do? What keeps me up at night? What am I like passionate about? That's what you should be doing. Mm. If you, if you're not doing what keeps you up at night and what, what you think about all the time, if you're not in that lane in some way, you're not going to be fulfilled. So I was lucky to find my passion at a young age. And also figured out what my superpowers were. You know, I'm comfortable in any room. I can be in the suites and in the streets. And if and I can connect with people. So if you take that and you take my passion, big president, CEO, big brothers, big sisters, what you get, right? And uh, I think we all got to figure that out. Man, brother, it has been an honor. It has really been an honor interviewing you, hearing some of your story, hearing some of the great things that you are doing in the community. Man, it... That was encouraging. That was really encouraging. Yeah. I hope out there in the audience that it encouraged you as well. Um, for all the educators that's out there, a tangible, I mean, a practical thing that you could go, that you could do a tool for all the leaders out there. You know, get in contact with Big Brothers. You know, get in yeah. contact with the organization because mentorship is so important. You know, your staff already has a lot to do planning teaching the curriculum, getting them ready for a test, helping them emotionally. Like they, they, you guys do so much. Why not get mentors inside the school building so that can take a little bit of stress off of you to help these students emotionally. It takes a village. No one can do it alone. That's why nonprofit organizations exist so they can support, support you guys along this mission out there. So thank you once again, before we wrap it up, I would like to ask you one more question. What is something that you feel like, what is the solution that you feel like the education system needs? You know, I think it goes back to what I was saying before. The biggest solution is we got to help kids get out of high school. And we can't do that just with instruction and curriculum. It's taking, it's going to take way more than that today. So my biggest push is to help kids stay in school, keep them learning and help them get out of high school. That's the lane I'm in. Someone else can pick it up after high school that that's not my lane but my lane is helping kids get out of high school if they can get out of high school they got a shot they got a shot so everything we should do as a society should be about that and, and that that looks different in different cities um but all of us like you said it's about bringing in everybody into a school building teachers can't do it alone principals can't do a tackle these challenges which are unique 
in this post-COVID world, especially with social media and AI, you know, I'm worried about what that means for young people. And if we're not smart and don't get ahead of it, it could it may be too late, right? Because young people are dealing with pressures that none of us have faced before with social media. None of us had to deal with being embarrassed, not just in our classroom, but for the whole city mm. if something happens. And what does that mean for bullying? I know you talk about that quite a bit. Like that type of stuff I'm worried about. You know, we got to help kids feel comfortable in the school building, get the support they need so they can graduate and be successful. Good stuff. Good stuff, man. Well, thank you for the time. And we are out. All right, man. Peace. Appreciate you. Have a good night.